People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Judy Leaf is a Buddhist teacher, writer, and editor. She was a close student of the Tibetan teacher Rinpoche and has worked with him as an editor. She has been a teacher and practitioner for over 35 years and continues to teach and lead retreats throughout the world. Judy is also active in the field of death and dying and is the author of the book Making Friends with Death. She is also a friend who we met in Maine when she was there leading a retreat. Welcome, Judy, to Health Gig. Thank you, and it's nice to see you again, Dora. We thought we'd begin today by talking a little bit about what's going on in the world. We know you've written about being overwhelmed with things, and we're wondering what you suggest for people who feel overwhelmed right now in the world we're living in. I think it's definitely very easy to be overwhelmed given not just the COVID virus, but the state of the climate and the general many causes of concern throughout the world. Refugees that are fleeing difficult situations, so many people that are climate impacted, losing their livelihood, losing their land and their crops, etc. Interesting thing about the virus that we're experiencing now is that it's something that affects everyone. You know, so many times there's pockets of suffering and then pockets of relative good situation, so to speak, or privileged situation. Uh, But the COVID virus is an impersonal kind of force, a living thing that wants to thrive and grow and finding host is its way of doing so. So that affects everyone. There's no kind of bias, particularly it doesn't seem. Paying attention to the kind of thoughts that arise in your mind in facing this virus. We have a lot of time to do that since we're all stuck at home. The way the thoughts run into speculations, what if thinking about the future, what if this happens, what if that happens, kind of going towards the disaster thinking in your mind. Sometimes the thinking goes to why me or why is this happening, feeling punished or attacked from outside forces. And I think that's best is just to keep very simple. There's a lot of sanity in the dealing with getting up in the morning, (laughs) figuring out how to get food, figuring out, like I did yesterday, how to sew a face mask, which I'm really terrible at, but I managed to do so anyway. The simple connections, it's so inspiring, you know, so much is positive and good is coming out as well. In the traditional thinking, for every bad thing that happens, there's a good thing that comes up in response. So the fear and the pain of this illness brings up a lot of heroic actions and a lot of clever thinking of how to find a cure, how to find a vaccine, etc. So I think so much is the thoughts, spinning thoughts and compulsiveness. Like I found early on, especially so compulsive to check the news every like, how many more people died in the last hour? Where is it now? What's the latest hotspot here and there? I think it's important to keep up with the news, but I think it's important to refrain from obsessing about the news. That helps a little bit. It just brings up that overall feeling of just loss of control. And you teach so much about us really not having control anyway. Can you talk about that and how control is really maybe an illusion anyhow? Yeah, it is. (laughs) And I think both we think we have more control than we actually have, and we think we know more than we actually do. And we're very uncomfortable that we don't know everything and we can't control everything. And then a lot of times then we 
take the further step in making enemies out of reality. You know, we're mad that we can't control things that we feel we should be able to control. And sometimes we're taught, you know, we should be in control. We should be able to make things happen and all that, which is fine. Sometimes we can make things happen. But fundamentally, we are part of something much larger than ourselves. We are part of something much more magical and mysterious than we could ever imagine. And I think it's a bit of human hubris to think that we're separate, that we stand apart from the world and we can somehow conquer and control it. I think that kind of thinking leads to lots of pain and lots of suffering. And you can see it, people fighting for control, people losing touch with the Mother Earth and having a conquering mentality and a take, take, take mentality, functional thinking. It's all about what we need for me, myself, and I, a hyper-individualistic, dog-eat-dog, competitive, harmful state of mind. You know, you had mentioned that I sometimes teach or write about dying or loss and change, and fundamentally the fact is we have a very limited time here on Earth, and that's a fact. That's an amazing, wonderful, incredible gift to exist, even with the pain and even with the suffering. Keeping those things in mind as a kind of lodestars, so to speak, is really important. What made you write Making Friends with Death? Because really, you are our go-to person for that. Like you said before, it's not really the death of someone dying, but it's all the little deaths in life. So how did you come to make this book? It's a funny story. Europa University started out as a summer institute, and there were lots of different classes offered in the summer institute. And one of them was a really in the standard kind of Tibetan Buddhist thing, a commentary on this classical text called the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which had been translated into English recently by Trungpa Rinpoche and Francesca Fremantle. So Francesca had been teaching this course each summer, and it just so happened that a couple of weeks before the, I think it was the 76th summer session, she was not able to come, and all these people had signed up for her course. So my teacher... Said, well, you should teach it instead. Oh, jeez. And I said, well, there's kind of a problem with that, and I haven't studied it. I don't know anything about it. And he said, well, you know, you can do it, uh, help you, and all that. So I ended up in a comfortable situation of having to take on this course where everyone's expecting her, the translator, and they got me. I barely survived. I had to give 14 talks, but I somehow survived that year. And then I was asked here and there to teach on it in other situations. This was in the late 70s, so this was a coming into a full bloom of the AIDS crisis. So anyway, I was teaching this course, which is really on Buddhist psychology. It's not just on end of life, like in my book, How to Deal with Losses and How to Deal with the Emotions and the Patterns that Come Up When We Face Something We Can't Control. But people coming to the class, some of them are interested in learning meditation. Some of them are interested in Buddhist, more scholarly stuff. And some are just dealing with their own loss or their own illness. It's kind of a very rich mix that I enjoyed working with. At some point, some of the students in the class would say, can't you do something more general based on the text, just more general Buddhist approach relating to end of life, loss and change? Can you recommend something? And I didn't really have a good thing at the time I could think of recommending that presented things the way I wanted. So that's how I ended up writing wow, it. I'm writing book. the book, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a long story. But <laughs> the fact is, that's how I ended up writing it. It's in response to what came up and what people wanted. 
and again, the whole premise of what you teach is that death is something that we experience daily, and it's the little deaths that help us prepare for the larger deaths. I think one of the teachings within Buddhist tradition, and I think in other contemplative traditions as well, is the notion that you can prepare yourself to be better able to deal with your own death and better able to help others who have experienced a loss or facing their own death. One way of doing so is to realize that death is a part of life from the very moment we take birth. There's a way of connecting with a cycle of change that is ongoing, continuous, and beginning to learn from observing how we react to little changes and to little losses, touching in each day with the fact of life could not exist without death. They are not separable fundamentally. Every fresh arising is also a dissolving. And so some of that we work with by reminding ourselves. And when we remind ourselves of the reality of death and continual change, it makes our daily experience so much more vivid. And it cuts through the sense of something out there, somewhere else coming to attack us in our solid life. And there is no out there, <laughs> it's in here. So the other thing is we work with the breath. In meditation, you work with the breath a lot. And the breath is learning in your body. You breathe naturally in breath and out breath. And every single breath cycle is like a little life. We breathe in and we let go. Something comes in and we let it go. So there's a sense of continual pressurizing and continual dropping away. I think a lot of times our view of life is like it's a long string, you know, our lifeline, and it goes along and we try to make it go along as strong and long as we can, and then it gets chopped off, then it's gone. In fact, there's never that thing there to begin with. There is no one solid life. There's only our experience moment to moment, always fresh and always dying. It's like each breath. So the idea that we have this solid thing that is so threatened by death would be like if we breathe in, and we just hold it as long as we can. <laughs> and the longer we hold it, the better we feel. That's one way of living life, never being able to let go and feeling so threatened. But the other way of living is to breathe simply, naturally, and relaxedly, so that we're letting go, no big deal. We appreciate so much letting go, and we're letting go over and over again. That makes so much sense. Even so, people have so much fear around death. What do the Buddhists teach about fear? I've just been working on a class on fear and courage and it's going to come out in May. But anyway, fear is natural, of course, and sorrow and pain and suffering. It's not that there's a magic thing where you just breathe through life and, you know, like a rock, nothing affects you or you just hunky-dory all the time. Everybody suffers. Everyone has loss. Everyone has fear. We have anger, we have greed, we have jealousy, we have all sorts of love and kindness and compassion. We're complex beings. Notion of fear, it is worth examining. What is it we actually fear? Sometimes we're not so sure. We just feel anxious. We just feel scared. And I think all we can do is really not struggle against that. Not to beat ourselves up, we should be strong, we should be brave, we shouldn't be fearful, but to be curious about that fear. What is it we're protecting? What is it we think we have to lose? And what are our views, you know, understanding ourselves? Of course, it's a complex thing. It's not easy to give an answer to so many different kinds of fear and whatnot. 
And some kinds of fear is really important, you know, keep us alive. It's part of our biology to protect ourselves and look out for danger and that kind of thing. There's a kind of fear when you immediately encounter something, like you almost get hit by a bus and you jump out of the way. Your body is all adrenalized and kind of immediate fear. Again, it's so much getting to know how your mind works, what sets you off. And so much of fear becomes this loop, just thinking and thinking. And sometimes the fear isn't so connected with anything, not even connected directly with you at all. You look at the news or you hear this or that might happen to somebody horrible, and then suddenly you're in a fearful reaction based on what? Thoughts. It's so removed and it's so much a mental game in a certain way. You know, you're sitting quietly by yourself. Could be nothing happening. You have a perfectly nice room, you know, sitting there. And a thought arises, what might happen? And you feel fearful. Nothing has changed. Nothing has threatened you. It's your own mind. And we look everywhere else around us to find out where the source of that fear is. And it's within us usually. Sometimes all it takes is one memory or one news story. (laughs) That's very different than a kind of a pure, I would guess, helpful fear. It's very tricky and so much has to do with observing and being curious about how your own mind works because we're each different. Some things might make me very fearful that don't make you and vice versa. So when you talked about getting to know how your mind works, how do you get to know how your mind works? The main thing first is to be inquisitive, be curious instead of just react and then not to stop at the first level of understanding. For instance, you know, I see this person and I have this reaction. So noticing that every time I see this person or hear this story, whatever, I have this reaction in my body all together. What's that about? What triggers that? And what sustains it? Because a lot of fear might be an immediate reaction, but then we sustain it. We sustain it because we dwell on it and we make it more and more solid. And not to discount the experience, not to say... We shouldn't feel this way. I feel bad. I shouldn't feel fearful. I shouldn't feel angry. But to feel what you feel, but be willing to then let it go or to find ways to disrupt. When we get into mental patterns, it's very solid and it goes on and on. So how to find little openings or ways to disrupt those patterns that feed our fear. We feed our sorrow. And I think maybe there's some kind of thing about humans. So sometimes you're feeling bad. You just want to keep feeling bad. Yeah. <laughs> you feel angry if someone kind of interrupts your bad feeling. <laughs> You're not going to cheer me up. No way. Right. <laughs> One of the things that I've read that you've written about is self-doubt. And it's something I struggle with. How do we make friends with ourselves? It's a long journey, I think. And yeah. I have to speak from my own tradition. I'm sure there's many different ways. One way is to sit quietly with yourself with a practice such as mindfulness. I'm going to experience whatever I'm experiencing. And in the good meditation training, one of the training is to become more inquisitive. And the more you become inquisitive and really have an intention to just observe what is this about, say self-doubt, for instance, you can notice the arising of self-doubt, the feeling of inadequacy or kind of uncertainty and what to do kind of mind. And you can bring it in. Say, okay, that's interesting. That's okay. That's just the feeling I'm having. And whatever arises in sitting practice, you try to observe it, and then you let it go. 
You don't try to say, oh, I shouldn't be like this. I should be confident and know what I'm doing. That's not going to work. It's like someone saying, you should just relax. How well does that work? It doesn't work at all. But if this is part of me. Can I accept this part of me? Can I understand this part of me? Can it just be an experience that's part of me? And it's not the whole of me. It's not the whole story. Is it a negative totally? Is it have positive quality? And does it arise only in certain situations? Why does it arise? When does it arise? And so you try to step back again, like where does it come from? You can see patterns arising. It's almost like you're a scientist and you're trying to look at yourself dispassionately. We incorporate all of what is there. So we're not taking some parts of ourself that we accept and like, and then we're burying the rest. So we always have to protect ourselves and anyone else from seeing the buried part so that we can feel good by claiming just part of ourselves. Why couldn't we feel okay about the whole thing? You say warts and all, so to speak. It's all a part of you. Your bad experiences, your mistakes, hesitations, your doubts are as much a part of you as all your wonderful qualities of insight and love and compassion and whatnot. If you can't accept more of that within you, then how can you accept that within others? Mm -hmm. You know, what arises for me in this COVID period so much, in particular, the relationship sides of things, the incredible pain by being separated from those you love or family members who are in intensive care or in the hospital or even dying and having no way to be there. It's horrible. To me, that's one of the big pains happening now. Almost more than fear of illness is that sense of, well, what if I'm all alone? Yeah. What if my mother is all alone and there's no way I can even visit? So how do we deal with all that? What is the antidote? The fact is that it's a painful thing. You know, I don't have a magic trick to make that not painful. The only thing I can offer is that I believe that our connections of love and compassion are not totally bound by space and time. I feel you can have love and compassion, be connected with people you love, even if they're on the other end of the earth, Mm -hmm. and you can affect them by your quality of care and projecting that whatever way you can. We're so fortunate, many of us, to have at least some kind of electronic connection. But even so, you have your heart and psychic connection, Mm -hmm. which I think goes beyond the usual conventional limits of I'm here and you're next town over and I can't see you. But it is difficult. But it's still going to be painful. Very painful. Um, To not feel that pain, that's human. If you have a heart, how could you not feel that? In the Buddhist training that I've had, the go-to place is always to think of so many others who are also suffering, to have a sense of expanding the compassion. It's not just about you. It's part of the human condition. Which can almost be more painful when you think of all the other people. That's a heavy load to carry, too. Yeah, it's funny, though, because I find that it actually lessens that quality of being under personal attack. Mm. And it also draws on something so positive, which is an expanding heart, you know, a heart that connects more broadly. Mm-hmm. But it's true. I mean, you could go the other direction and dwell on anything and drive yourself crazy. (laughs) In general, whenever we think of others, it's a bit of a relief. Yes. Because we think about ourselves all the time. You know, when you think of others, it's a relief. Oh, it's a bigger world than just me and my particular drama and my particular pain. And no one's under attack. And everybody has this incredible gift of being able to express love and kindness and able to do simple acts of help for one another. 
what do you talk about when there is no real next chapter, right? This is your life right now. And I think you talked about that at the beginning, but what do you say when people say, well, when I'm 60, I'll do that. Or when I'm 75, that's my next chapter or, you know, that kind of idea. I don't think there's anything wrong with those kind of ideas, as long as you know they're just ideas. I think it's good to have goals. I'd like to do this, I'd like to do that. I think the problem is in what's called, in the Buddhist tradition, called solidification. You take something and you make it solid, and then you invest everything into that solid thing. And if it doesn't happen, you get angry and upset. Like, for instance, I know a young woman who is pregnant, she had it all planned out exactly what she thought was supposed to happen. <laughs> what kind of birth, where, why, what, how, everything. She was totally invested in that. And she completely freaked out because it didn't go that way. That is what solidification is. You could say, I would like to do this, but you have to always have a sense of the humility of things. The world has its own way of deciding what to do. <laughs> right, right, right. The fluidness of it. Yeah, it's like, you have a clarity. What is the past and what is the future? And what is the plan? And what is actually my experience now? And was it on the bottom line that you can count on only is the present moment? doesn't mean you don't think about the past, you don't think about the future, but the thoughts are in the present. The past is gone. Everything just happens once. You don't replay anything unless you go to Groundhog Day movie. <laughs> but in ordinary life, it's kind of so shocking to be on that edge. It's so vivid and so ungraspable, just so beautiful in a way. <laughs> so there's like no do-overs. That other phrase, oh, there's a do-over. There's really not do-overs then, right? As far as I know. Because that moment, those exact things aren't there. You can do the same thing, so to speak. You go to the job, you go to your office each day. So you say, I'm doing the same thing. But not really. Nothing is ever the same thing. You're never the same. The situation is always slightly different. That's great because what's happening in the present moment is so alive. What you try to drag along and make alive when it's not live anymore, it's like a zombie world or something or like a shut down world. And I think we do that a lot because our experience is too vivid. We don't want to see freshly. We'd rather have everything pinned down. Judy, can you touch on gratitude for a minute? You said gratitude, the more you give, the richer you feel. It has to do with getting beyond like a zero-sum approach, you know, that we have a limited amount and we share it and then we deplete. And when we make a generous gesture, we're losing something from ourselves in order to help someone else. And there's a form of generosity. You're enriched by giving. You're enriched by receiving. What I found is that I've been in nonprofit roles. My understanding, the main thing about nonprofit roles is you're always begging for money and <laughs> begging for support. That's life in the nonprofit lane. And so that's a lot of times that's a hard thing to get into. You know, it's hard for most people to ask for money, ask for support, and stuff like that. At one point, I had this realization that I thought about times I'd given money or given support, and I always felt really great about it. And I could remember times I decided not to, and I felt crappy about that. <laughs> I thought, oh, wait, they're giving people an opportunity to feel really good about being generous. And it's true. People do feel good about being generous. People want to be generous. Deep down, they want to be kind. You know, they want to be loving. Even if on the surface, they're being very dysfunctional and messed up. There's a lot of humor within Tibetan Buddhism. And there's a slogan, be grateful to everyone. The humor in that, I suppose, is the idea is that when you really want to be grateful 
that you have so many obstacles. You really want to be grateful because that's when you learn about yourself. Right. Because no point in being grateful for all the good stuff. You should be grateful for right. all the challenging things. There's always that little twist and you think, wait a minute, I'm grateful for these things, but I'm not grateful for those. How do you transform anger? Anger is considered one of the fundamental emotions that are challenging to humans. There's quite a large body of psychological teaching and view within the tradition that I'm in. But one side of that is emotional powers that are called dysfunctional emotions, you know, such as anger, greed, hatred. So all of them are kind of lumped together as uh, challenges for humans. How do we deal with the power of these emotions? People have different ones, you know, that are primary go-to freak-out emotions, whether it's depression, anger, whatever it is. There's no easy fix. But one of the potential benefits of sitting meditation is it approaches it by slowing down. One aspect of sitting practice, if you're doing mindfulness practice, is you spend some time just slowing down and observing your own heart, mind, body process. Sitting meditation and dealing with something like a strong emotion, the idea is that they overcome us and overwhelm us so quickly. And the only hope we have of trying to cut them off at the past, so to speak, is to slow down enough because every emotion arises as a very small flicker of thought, but you don't catch them. We don't notice them. So one of the aspects of meditation and dealing with emotions is just simply slowing them down enough. You can see before they build, when we might be irritated, but we're not furious, and we begin to see where we can cut the force of the emotion before we're just fried. Easy to describe, but not that easy to do. There's different stages of working with ourselves that are described in different ways. The first stage is really getting to know yourself more and taming the wildness of our thoughts and overwhelming kind of a lording over us power of our emotions and practicing some quality of restraint. So there's also the sense of curiosity goes a long way. What is this? I'm not trying to figure it out in terms of psychological or even Buddhist theory, but as a phenomenon. Why do I label this anger? What am I referring to? Is it a particular thought? And is it useful or not? Because sometimes a strong feeling can be useful in a situation. But more often than not, <laughs> not so useful. <laughs> not so useful. God, Judy, really spending time with you is such a gift to Doro and me and to all of our listeners. And thank you for all of your wisdom and all of the work that you do and for your book, Making Friends with Death. I mean, it's just such an important message to all of us. It was so nice seeing you. I'm disappointed we won't be in Maine this year. I know. We, we had to, given the circumstances. Are you going to do it on Zoom platform or something? We're working on what to do. In the meantime, we will be doing some Zoom offerings. Where can our listeners find all that, Judy? On my website. That's great, because we'd love to promote that. And your website is what? Judyleaf.com. <laughs> Okay, perfect. Easy. <laughs> Pretty easy. But it's one of my favorite things to go to Maine every year. Next year. Next year. Absolutely. Thank you and stay healthy and safe. Yeah, it's good to see you. Great to see you too. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.